0: The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to UUSF.org.
1: When we first learned about this terrible COVID disease, it, it wasn't easy to feel alive like this music wants us to feel. I know I didn't in the beginning. I, I hated being shut up in my own house and even though I was used to it, in some ways it felt like being in jail. I know some of you may have felt the same way, but I don't quite feel that way anymore. It's as though the fog is beginning to lift and instead of muted colors on the buildings in the San Francisco landscape, we begin to see color again. And that's good because as Howard Thurman suggested in this morning's reading, the world needs in it people who feel alive so they can develop the kind of hope that's necessary to overcome the pessimism that see so many of us during the twin times of COVID, and the lingering on of Trumpist attitudes that continue to threaten our very democracy. The people who've fallen for those kind of ideas have lost the empathy and compassion that are so basic to having hope for the future. For whatever their reasons, such people would prefer instead of caring for the whole of our society to sinking into a kind of selfishness in which the well-being of other people just is no longer relevant. They think others should take care of themselves or just get out of the way. Unitarian Universalists have had a long history of rejecting such attitudes, at least when we've been at our best, and there have been times when we weren't, of course. It's why instead of complaining about restrictions on in-person worship during the pandemic, we turned to electronic means for bringing us into community, just like the singers were on that screen as they were singing from their own homes, but together with one another. We found ways to achieve that, ways to be together without risking infecting ourselves or our fellow congregants with this disease that has taken hold of so many. During the time we were honoring the lockdown, my wife and I found comfort in watching The Tonight Show. We hadn't watched that much in the past, the show with Jimmy Fallon. But before he returned to the glitz of his Broadway studio in New York, Fallon broadcast his show from home and his wife filmed it on her iPhone with their children running around and bumping in to each other and playing games. And via Zoom, Fallon himself interviewed guests with whom he usually talked about the frivolous things or what movie they were appearing in. From his home, he talked with his guests in a more serious manner. Typically, he talked about topics that he'd always shied away from Fallon was showing that family life and social conscience don't have to be separated from each other in the lives of those who are alive, despite things like the pandemic and threats from those who've fallen for a philosophy of uncaring. In our times, rather than falling for such a philosophy, we need the kind of empathy and compassion that Fallon was modeling out in those programs from his home. He was showing a bit of his own real life. And in our real lives, those of us who are here know that we can't escape all the bad things that happen. We can't escape the fact that either we or members of our family or our friends have had times when they didn't seem able to get things together. And who of us hasn't seen some disease wreck havoc? Hasn't seen divorce, an accident, or the loss of a job affect them? Or us. And what of those who've endured oppression because of their skin color or sexual preferences or lifestyle or opinions? I tried to address one particular side of this issue a long time ago when I wrote a book about marriage. I'd had trouble in my own first marriage, the one I had before, the one I had with my lovely wife, Jan, which has gone on for a very long time. In that first marriage, there were things that happened that led me to trying to figure out what to do to build a sustained relationship. And I was also trying to figure out what to do As a supposed liberal minister who people could turn to as their last resort, they were asking me to do marriages when the marriage that was going to take place was something that was disdained by polite society or was even illegal. I came to the conclusion that it wasn't some government in what they said or the attitudes of people in polite society. What mattered was the love that people felt for themselves, and that needed to be honored by institutions like marriage. And I wrote about that in my book. So it was in 1971, believe we'll it a long time ago, I officiated at my first gay wedding at a nightclub in Newport, Kentucky. The ed- editors at Beacon Press, our denominational publishing house, on whose board I sat, heard me talk about that and they encouraged me to write about my supportive attitudes about marriages, including marriages that up until that time had been frowned upon, showing, I think, some denominational support for my attitudes. But it shouldn't have been so surprising since the press had already been publishing books that showed how people showed compassion even in the most difficult times or when what they were doing wasn't approved of by the societies in which we lived. For instance, they published a book called Walls by a German author named Helgund Zosserman. In her book, Zosserman talked about what it meant to be alive and show empathy and compassion during the Second World War in Nazi Germany. She was the only person near a prison who understood Scandinavian languages. So she was recruited by the Nazi officials to translate and censor letters written by those prisoners. During that time, What she was able to do, because remember, she was the only one who understood Scandinavian languages in that area, was to allow the prisoners to hear from their families about their real lives and their real feelings and to communicate back to them likewise. This meant something was going on that was extraordinary. So extraordinary that one of the prisoners said to her, what you are doing makes me understand I am alive, no matter what these things going on are doing to me. It's significant that Zasserman brought her book to Beacon Press. She did so not only because she admired the social conscience, The press had shown in publishing books like the Pentagon Papers. It was because the books Beacon published showed that Unitarian Universalists were caring people. We are. We are people who not only want to feel alive ourselves, but want others to be able to feel alive as well. Understanding the meaning of what Arianna Huffington writes, in an online post she published in more recent times. Huffington wrote, Since Einstein, scientists have been trying to come up with a theory of everything which would explain our entire physical world by reconciling general relativity with quantum physics. In the study of our emotional world, there is no analogous theory of everything. But if there were, Empathy and compassion and giving would lie at the center of it. Modern science has overwhelmingly confirmed the wisdom of those early philosophers and religious traditions who affirmed this. Empathy, compassion, and giving, which is empathy and compassion in action, are the building blocks of our being. With them, we flourish. Without them, we wither. If we're to flourish, our Unitarian Universalist forebearers believed that it would come from following what David Brooks calls a humility code. Such a code would say that rather than waiting for happiness to come our way, we should live in a way that creates it. We should work to understand ourselves including not only the gifts we have, but the flaws with which we must deal. We should know that we don't have to be better than others, just be ourselves at our best. We should understand the connectedness we have with others and with life itself. We should get behind the notion that life should always be good to us. That is not a notion that sustains itself. So when bad things happen, we should pull ourselves together and get on with our lives. And if we need help in doing that, we should ask someone to help us. For after all, they're a part of this interconnected web of existence of which we're a part too. And when good things happen, we should respond. Understanding as the theologian Paul Tillich put it, we are accepted by this universe of which we are part as long as we have the courage to be. Being alive in this way isn't something onerous as some people would like us to think. In fact, there's a joy in it. As one person put it, a life of compassion and caring in which human life and human well-being are not matters of some kind, of economic equation, but as regarded as something sacred, is something we should understand and live. The pandemic that has held us in its grasp is beginning to fade a bit and as it does, we should be able to regain a sense of aliveness, the empathy and compassion that go with it. If we can, we'll be able to behave in ways that help us to move closer to the social and economic justice which our world so desperately needs to achieve. Doing this rather than falling into self-servingness as we would be lured into by Trumpism is what our world so desperately needs. It needs it especially when times feel bleak. Adding to this bleakness with pessimism doesn't help. What will help, as Barack Obama put it, will be to go out and make some good things happen. Doing this will help fill the world with hope and that will fill us with hope too. So do as much as we can to feel alive and help others to feel that way too which is a thought to which I would say amen and shalom. Let us all share the blessings of this earth and add to it our own blessings, amen.
0: As mentioned, today's sermon is about feeling alive, things that make us feel that way, Uh, and I was asked to reflect on that topic. Uh, Reverend Dave posed the question, what's a time when you've felt alive? Um, And the thing about asking someone who performs for a living, uh, a time they felt alive, I can guarantee you that all of us would say, when I'm performing. Um, And the thing about this particular moment is, it would feel very weird to talk about how I feel alive, talking in front of people, when what I'm doing is talking in front of people. So I've decided to not do that, and we'll go a little deeper into the well here today. Um, when I was a kid, my grandparents took me along with them to work at auto part swap meets. Uh, if you have not ever been to an auto part swap meet, uh, it is like a flea market for car parts. Sometimes they're set up as an attachment to a regular flea market or a part of an antique car show. Uh, The primary attendees of auto part swap meets, at least when I was young, were old men who worked on cars and their bored family members who had been dragged along for the outing. Uh, My grandpa would give me $20 for helping load all the stuff up in the trailer and unload it once again when we arrived at whatever unused fairground or parking lot we'd be at that week. He would lay out his tables and organize all the car parts appropriately, whatever that meant. Uh, He specialized in selling antique car parts. Uh, Some of the stuff that he had out was labeled with a price. Other things were not. Uh, Everything, though, I assure you, was open for haggling. Uh, It was his favorite thing. Uh, my grandfather occasionally would acquire a part that he couldn't identify from some foreign car he had not worked on. I have a memory that one time a man picked up a part that my grandfather did not know what it was. And the man asked my grandfather how much it was. My granddad paused for a moment and responded, $80, thinking that that was a good amount of money. Uh, the man interested in the part, immediately broke out into a huge grin and pulled out $80 and said, sold. As he walked away, my grandfather laughed and said, I don't know what that part was, but that just guy just got a very good deal on it. Uh, our booth at the auto part swap meet was a little different from most of the other booths, which primarily sold auto parts and Uh, occasionally vintage car memorabilia. Uh, I'm wearing a 55 Chevy belt buckle right now obtained at such a place. Uh, You can look at it after the service, it's cute. Um, uh, Our booth though, uh, because my grandparents, ever the entrepreneurs, saw bored family members who had been dragged along to the swap meet as a business opportunity. Inevitably, at every swap meet, our booth would be visited by a string of older women who would say, finally, something that isn't a bunch of old car junk. My grandmother had set up her portion of the booth uh, where she sold clothes for geese. Not real geese, uh, but the cement kind you'd put on your front porch. She'd have outfits for them, like a leprechaun costume for St. Patrick's Day, or a Santa outfit, or like bib overalls and a flannel shirt in case you wanted your front porch goose to look like a farmer for some reason. Uh, She also made other home decor crafts. Uh, One of them looked like a child that had been put in the corner on time out. They were, in retrospect, a little creepy. Um, uh, But my favorite thing that she sold were these giant uh, anthropomorphic rabbits dressed as maids that were intended to cover your vacuum cleaner. they were incredibly intricate works of sewing that took a lot of skill and no doubt led to my adult appreciation of a very kitschy aesthetic. Uh, my grandmother's generally lower cost items sold so well that she would often rival the income of my grandfather at these auto part swap meets. Uh, there is something to be said about cornering the market. Uh, and lastly, there was the third section of our booth. Uh, It was a small card table, which I would set up, and I would sell baseball cards, football cards, soccer cards, superhero trading cards. Uh, On a good day, I would make about $5, because I sold these cards for about a quarter a piece. And mostly I'd make them from other kids who had been dragged along, and their grandparents wanted to buy them something that wasn't a muffler. Um, But occasionally, I would get money from an adult who found the superhero cards and fondly recalled reading Shazam or Wonder Woman when they were kids. Eventually, my parents moved far enough away from my grandparents that these outings were no longer really feasible, Um, but they do still stand out as one of my fondest memories, enough so that I'm willing to count these as memories of a time I felt alive. At the time, the 25 bucks a day I made as a kid was a big deal, though in retrospect I do not think that is what made me feel alive. It was that I was given responsibilities and that I felt like an active participant in my family. Uh, The time I spent with people who cared about me and wanted me to be a part of their lives, no matter how strange that part might be. Also, the day inevitably ended up with a stop at the ice cream shop So that was nice too, thank you.